If you would, um, just bow as I read this, um, for this, this verse from 1 John chapter 5. You don't have to look it up. Um, it's very brief, but I'd just like to begin with this word. And let us all listen very carefully. This is the word of our Lord. 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. Pray with me. Almighty God, we ask that in this time You would speak to us. I might have uh, neat things to say or even clever things, but Father, those things do not bring life. You do. And we recognize that, and we recognize our need for that. So as we are desperate to hear from you, Father, please, for your own glory and name, speak to us. We pray these things in the strong name of Christ. Amen. I do my best thinking when I'm driving. I do not, however, do my best driving when I'm thinking. Um, I've ended up in many a dead end, cul-de-sac, as I think and drive. I grew up in Paducah, Kentucky, in this little suburb called Hendron, which is a suburb of Lone Oak, which has 450 people. Um, But I would drive around my small town and I would listen to music, and I would think. And that, that followed me when I went to Murray State in Murray, Kentucky. A little bit more than 400 people, but not, not much. Um, but lots of farmland, and these little two lanes would split the farmland, and I would just drive and drive and think. And usually what I would be thinking about had something to do with my faith and my doubts. We are celebrating uh, the second Sunday after Easter. And this is sometimes known as St. Thomas Sunday. And we are going to be spending tonight looking at this encounter between Thomas and the risen Lord. But I would drive around and I would think about my doubts. I would think about my faith. And I would wonder, is this faith a faith that I hold? Or do I hold this because of my friends, because of my family, because I'm in the South, although uh, neutral state, um, Kentucky, uh, always like to point that out. Uh, but but is, it, is it because of this American Christianity? Is it because of that? Or is it because I believe these things to be true? And so I would drive and I would doubt and so when we, when we go and, and enter into this story, into this story in John 20, this climax of John's gospel, I think that there are a couple of definitions that we need to have, some things kind of outlined before we enter in. And so I want to give three definitions, essentially, and then talk about how one of them doesn't exist. Um, the first thing would be to divine, d- define a believer. A believer is, is a person who has received the gift of faith and grace from God on the account of the work accomplished by his son Jesus Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. This gift of grace was received in a believing trust that Christ's sacrifice 
was and is sufficient for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of life forever with the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. That is a believer. Then there is the non-believer. Now, this is a person that does not see any relevance to this issue whatsoever. They do not care. It is not important to them. They are a non-believer. And then the third thing, an unbeliever. An unbeliever has heard the message of the gospel and has been exposed to the truth of Christ's sacrifice and resurrection and rejects it with a refusal to believe. An unbeliever does not believe in the risen Lord. Now, all of these can doubt. Everyone can doubt. A believer can doubt. An unbeliever can doubt. Tim Keller, in his book Reason for God, does an amazing introduction when it comes to doubt, talking about doubt is a belief. It's an alternate belief. And that's why I would say that the non-believer does not really exist. Because the non-believer, the person that says, I don't care about this, I, I have nothing to do with this, that is a belief. And so what we're going to be talking to, uh, about tonight is not necessarily doubt. We're going to be talking about unbelief. You see, I, I have doubts all the time. I've had doubts since being a minister. I've, I had doubts all through growing up. I've driven around very, very angry and doubting. And so if you are here and you are, you are in a season of doubt, do not think that, that that means that you are an unbeliever, although unbelievers do doubt. And so now that we have some of these things uh, laid out, uh, with doubt, uh, we have doubt that is questioning, and then we have rejecting. And in Thomas's story... Thomas' story is more than just doubt. It is about unbelief. See, sometimes doubt can be a very good thing because that means we are engaging in these issues. We see that it is relevant and it matters and we need to make up our minds about things. Doubt can be an element that drives us through the power of the Spirit to faith. But tonight, as we look at the Apostle Thomas... uh, We can no longer call him Doubting Thomas. But perhaps more fittingly, we will refer to him as Unbelieving Thomas. And so if you would turn with me to chapter 20 in the Gospel of John, we will be uh, be beginning with verse 24. Gospel of John, chapter 24. It's the fourth Gospel. If you find Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John... And we'll be towards the end of John in chapter 20, starting with verse 24. This is the third part of John's gospel. Uh, There are lots of different ways we can break the gospels down and look at different things, but uh, with the synoptic gospels, that's easy, uh, we we see all of these uh, similar stories being told between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. With John, we have a very different style, a different approach. And so he's gone through three different sections. And this section, this third part of John, begins with John 11. It begins with Lazarus being raised from the dead. And and what's interesting is that uh, in this third part, Thomas enters in for the first time. 
It's when they're saying, uh, Jesus says, we're going back to Jerusalem. I'm, I'm going to go heal Lazarus. I'm going to bring him from the grave. And the disciples say, you do know that's where they want to kill you. And he says, I know. And he is persistent. And it is Thomas that speaks up and says the words that I think are boldly said. Come let us go that we might die with him. Now you could say that he's rejecting what Jesus had said so far. And it's just like, okay, Jesus is saying that you know, that's not going to happen. And I think it is. And so he's being very pessimistic. But at least he's courageous enough to speak up. And John notes that. And so this beginning of the third section in John 11, carried out to the end of the gospel, begins with these words of Thomas. And so here we are in chapter 20. Like Joel talked about last week with the resurrection story with Mary, the disciples are gathered together still in Jerusalem. And it is Sunday evening. Sunday evening, Easter evening. And the disciples are in a locked room because they fear for their own lives. And as they are in this room, indoors, locked in, Jesus appears to them. And he says to them, peace be with you. And it was an amazing moment. John talks about how the disciples were glad to see him. But Thomas was not there. Thomas wasn't with them. Verse 24 says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Thomas was out. Thomas was out thinking that Jesus was dead. He was not there. And we can't see this as an accident or bad luck for Thomas or even worse, bad timing for Jesus. Rather, according to God's sovereignty, Thomas was not there. And as soon as he returns, in verse 25, as soon as he returns, the disciples rush to tell him. Verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. With clarity and compassion and excitement, the disciples tell him the news. They did not try to develop an attractive environment for him in hopes of wooing Thomas. Uh, They did not trick him into a pizza party or a skate park or hassle him at the mall. Uh, They loved their friend. They love their brother, Thomas. And they rush to tell him about the reality. Not just suggest a preferred ideology, but the reality of the risen Lord. The disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. And Thomas refuses to believe. Never, he says. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails... And place my finger into the mark of the nails. And place my hand into his side. I will never believe. This is emphatic. He's not just wondering about this news and saying, I wonder if it's true. Turning the question over in his heart like a person who doubts. He is rejecting this truth outright. And it's it's very offensive, um, on two different levels, really. The, the, first, the first offensive thing is that he's rejecting all of the prophecy that Jesus has spoken concerning his death and resurrection. 
We looked at a lot of those verses last week where Jesus is, is saying that he will be killed and he will rise again. And in Thomas rejecting the news from the disciples, he's rejecting the prophecy, the words of the Lord. And then something that, that kind of slips under the radar here. The second thing is he's rejecting the words of his friends. He's rejecting the testimony of his friends. He's rejecting the credibility of his friends. He is calling them liars. That what they have experienced or say that they have experienced, they have not. This is so offensive. At the dawn of the Enlightenment, right around the 17th century or so, um, painters really enjoyed painting this scene. They called it the incredulity of Thomas. Not the the doubt of Thomas, but the incredulity. that, That he was rejecting belief. He was refusing belief. And they, they depicted the scene because uh, uh, at a time where facts were becoming so important, here was the one who got the facts. And I think that that misses the point of the story. But at least it recognizes his rejection of the truth. Probably the most uh, famous one is the uh, Caravagos uh, if you're a fan of Lost, it was in a couple episodes ago. Uh, Benjamin Linus points it, points it out, and he, he talks about how, you know, this, this doubter, and, and he, he needs proof, and he gets the proof, and so now he's this man of faith and, because he got this hard, fast evidence. But this picture has Thomas with this inquisitive look on his face, poking his finger into the side of Christ, where he sees his rejections refuted. So he rejects the words of Christ and he rejects his friends. And then in verse 26, 26, a week goes by. And that's why this is known as St. Thomas Sunday, because it is exactly the, the Sunday after Easter, tonight, in the evening time, when a week has gone by and Thomas is with them. Now, I want, to, I want to pause here for a second and point something out. I think this is pretty incredible. And, and for as many times as I've heard this story, I've always uh, moved past this point. An entire week goes by. And Thomas is with the disciples. And the disciples are with Thomas. A week of rejecting their words, calling them liars... And he remains with them. And they remain with him. I mean, can you imagine what this week was like as as they, they would go over the story again and again, trying to convince him. And he says no, over and over. But Thomas doesn't leave the disciples and the disciples don't leave Thomas. Eleven guys, one calling the ten liars. The, only, the, 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 the example that I think of in my mind is like if you were dating someone and they invited you to go on vacation with their family and the first night of the week-long vacation, they break up with you. And then you spend the entire week 
stuck with these people. I mean, that has happened. Thankfully, not to me, but it has happened to people. Um, And that that tension for a week in this small space, because they're fearing for their lives. They're not just like blowing off steam walking around the neighborhood. They're stuck, locked in this room, waiting to go back home. And here they are. But they don't leave one another. And in verse 26... Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. He speaks directly to the Words that Thomas used to reject this truth. He knew the doubt that had become unbelief. He knew what it was. And he spoke directly to it. And called Thomas by name. And then he says to him, Do not disbelieve, but believe. Do not disbelieve, but believe. This is not a boy asking a girl to dance. This is not a guy getting up enough courage to walk to the back wall of the gymnasium and say, would you like to dance? This is the sovereign creator Lord calling belief into the unbeliever. This is vital for us to understand what's happening here. This is an imperative call to Thomas. Do not go on in your disbelieving, but believe. This is the message of the risen Lord, made effective by the risen Lord. See, the the disciples had done that legwork, the evangelism. They had done that. They had spoken the word of the Lord to Thomas. Yielding zero results. And this is someone that has all the evidence ready for them. He had seen Lazarus pulled out of the grave. He was there at the table when Jesus was describing his death and his resurrection. He had all the evidence ready, yet he went on unbelieving. But it was not until the message of Christ was made effective by Christ Himself. 28, Thomas answers, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Thomas makes his own that Jesus is Lord. The disciples had said, We have seen the Lord. And Thomas now takes this message to be his own recognizing the the humanity of Jesus as the Messiah. And he also says that Jesus is God. Jesus had said this to him in John 14. We have have this scene where he says to him, "If if you have seen me, if you have known me, you have known the Father, my Lord and my God. 
both the humanity and the divinity recognized. Confessing one alone misses the reality of the risen Lord, but Thomas sees them both. And then Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Verse 29. Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. See, facts, facts do not spark the fire of faith. Christ himself does that by revelation. Facts aid to fuel and fan the fire of faith. But lighting the fire is revelation. These facts, they fuel it and they grow it and grow our faith through the power of the Spirit. Grow the faith. But we are not looking for the gaining and acquisition of facts, although there are plenty out there to fuel this faith. Faith comes from the risen Lord. And so in verse 30, we get the point of the entire book of John. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The point is that you would see that he is Lord and God, just like Thomas. That is why this is the climax of the entire book. It is all leading up to this point, my Lord and my God, that Thomas's confession would be your confession, and that you would not go on unbelieving, but believing. Twenty-seven times in uh, the Gospel of John. Are there references, direct references to Jesus being Lord and God? And this is a this is a drumbeat that carries throughout the gospel, and it is the climactic point, the confession of Thomas, my Lord and my God. In closing, I, I want to address both the unbeliever and the believer. And this is where it gets tricky. Um, to the unbeliever, I apologize for how often believers do not remain with you. Believers, uh, we, we often treat you, as Thomas Merton put it, like a, like a physician treats a patient. We wait for you to stop talking so we can give you the answers. We have treated you not like a person in need of the risen Lord, but as a project. And for this I apologize. However, as believers, we have seen the risen Lord. He has conquered the grave and ransomed many by the mercy of God for the forgiveness of sin. And we do not simply seek your agreement in our argument, but we seek that God would reveal himself to you and cast out all fear and doubt. And to the believer, I think there are three points of application that we, that we have to put into action in light of this scene with Thomas. First thing, um, the disciples shared the good news with Thomas. And we are called and commanded to share the news of the risen Lord. Clearly, honestly. They went to him, their friend, to declare the risen Lord. The second thing is that we, the, uh, the disciples remained with Thomas and he remained 
with them. And you are called to love the unbeliever and remain with them. I'm sure you can probably think about someone in your life, the unbeliever, the one that has rejected the things that you have said, that you feel such relief when you break that relationship. When you say, I do not have to email them anymore, I've done my part. Because that was proclaiming the word. I've done my part, now it is up to the Lord. You are not finished with your part until you remain with them. Remain with them, though they might call you a liar and a mad person. You remain with them. I had a friend that I called once a month for five years without a return phone call. Remain with them. The second thing, or the, the third thing here. It is Christ alone that makes the message of the good news transformative. You must look only to Christ to reveal Himself, not for us to argue someone into belief. In Luke uh, 24, on the Emmaus Road, Jesus Himself drew near. And that is when the message of the risen Lord is made effective by the risen Lord. And sometimes when it comes to application, I think that what enlisting the dangers of these things, what, what is the danger of not doing these things? Sometimes we can gain a better understanding because more often than not, we're not doing these things. And we can, we can hear the resonating tone by hearing the dangers if we don't. I know that, that that works best for me. So the dangers. The first one, concerning the call to share, the command to share. If we reject Jesus' command to share, we deny Him as our Lord and our God. For uh, in, in Romans 7, Paul talks about the servant does what the master calls him to, and whoever you are obeying is your master. And so our silence is rejecting the Lord. Two, rejecting the unbeliever and refusing to remain. This comes from arrogance. The only difference between the believer and the unbeliever is that Christ himself has drawn near and revealed himself, called them out. Do not go on unbelieving, but believe. It is not because we are more moral, because we have better families, better education, better finances, health. You see see these things? It is not because we have these things. It is because we have revelation from Christ Himself. If we start putting our stock in the things that we have then we begin to be so arrogant and prideful and we do not walk humbly with our Lord, seeing that it is His gift of faith and grace that brings us to being a believer. We are no more faithful, virtuous, or moral, nor as the world might call us, gullible, foolish, or weak. Rather, God Himself has revealed His reality to us. Remaining is about a relationship, not a result. There's a, this really bad movie called Death to Smoochie. Um, I do own it on uh, DVD. <laughs> do not watch it. There's no need. Uh, but there's a scene. It's this, it's this kind of like Barney-like character. And uh, 
And he, but he's like a rhinoceros, and he has a guitar, and he sings songs. Anyway, the, this, he gets a cable show, and there's this guy who's marketing it and all this stuff. And I, I think it's John Stewart. Uh, so all, all this stuff is happening, and, and Edward Norton, the guy who dresses up in the rhino costume, he says, you don't even see children anymore. You see wallets with pigtails. And sometimes we don't see people any, anymore. We see projects You know, we, we just see that thing that we need to get, we're going to swoop in there and save them. And that, that takes us to this third caution. Uh, we all want to be Superman. We all think that the world needs me. The Savior they are in need of is me. I will hold them up. I will be there and I will turn things around for them. We spend our time and resources and our ability to persuade unbelievers into belief. But belief in what? Belief into our argument, belief into our cleverness. See, this fuels our own arrogant pride in thinking that if we perform well enough, we will win the soul rather than humbly plead with God to reveal himself to the unbeliever and admit our complete inability to save another person. So what if we do this? To the believers, what if we do this? What if we recognized that the difference between the believer and the unbeliever is the desperate, desperate need for revelation? That we would be faithful to preach the word and proclaim it. That we would remain with the unbeliever throughout the duration of their unbelieving in steadfast prayer that God would reveal himself and cast out all fear and doubt. I think that if we did that, our worship, our perspective, our evangelism, our church would look more like Christ. And so that is, that is my, my charge to you. And that doubt, it's there. But, but we are called as believers to remain faithful to the unbelievers, seeking after the power of of Christ to take the message of the risen Lord and make it effective by the risen Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, we recognize And Father, we desire to recognize much more greatly the power of your revelation. Father, guard our our hearts from the pride of thinking that people need us rather than your Son. Teach us what it means to remain, to love and care for the unbeliever. And teach us what it means to praise and worship the risen Lord. And Father, we continue to worship in this time. May you be honored and glorified with the words of our mouths and the words of our hearts. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.